North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. It's an exciting day on The Impossible State because we have Ellen Kim, who has just come back to CSIS to be with Victor. She's the deputy director of the Korea Chair. Welcome back to Ellen. Victor and I are here. We also have Jonathan Chang, who is the Beijing bureau chief of the Wall Street Journal. Jonathan, we welcome you back to the program. So great to have you here. Let's start out with China and its reaction to the recent Biden trip to Asia. And then, Jonathan, I want to ask you about the Shangri-La dialogues, which I believe have just concluded. Yeah, um, lots of action in the region on the security front in the last few days. Of course, uh, China, I think, is a big part of it. North Korea, too. But um, but I'll start with the Biden trip. You know, Biden um, obviously did not come to China itself. And yet um, China was sort of the subtext of the trip. Um, as we know, you know, Biden has talked, as his predecessors have, about putting more of a focus on the region out here, and in particular China, uh, just given its economic clout and um, its geopolitical ambitions, which I don't know whether it's better to say that they're growing or to say that they're becoming more apparent uh, to people in Washington, but um, maybe both are true. But I think it's now to the point where, despite everything else happening in the world, including Ukraine, I think there's just a real awareness in Washington that the region just needs attention. And, and of course, going back to the Obama presidency and the talk of the pivot to Asia, um, that's that's been probably even before then, there's been a lot of talk about this. But I think there's really just an attempt to try and put some meat on those bones. And there's the economic challenge, the political challenge, the military challenge. And with North Korea in particular, I think, um, with all the tests that Kim Jong-un has staged this year, that coming again to the forefront, um, there's the COVID situation happening there, um, as well as in China, and, and all of that sort of an overlay on, on all of this. So the Shangri-La dialogue, I think, sort of put a fine point on it with some of the Taiwan talk um, and uh, some of the talk of the military confrontation and the possibility that the U.S. and China could you know, come to, to blows over something um, in the region, whether it be North Korea or Taiwan or something else. Victor, I want to ask you to jump in uh, on what Jonathan just said, a lot to, you know, dissect there. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think um, while the administration has been focused on the war in Europe, we had this sequence of events. It was a clear effort by the White House to show that the focus was on China, uh, on China and on Asia, starting with uh, ASEAN leaders coming to the White House for uh, a summit meeting, then President Biden going to Seoul and Tokyo uh, for his first trips to Asia. Very good summit in Korea with the new South Korean president. Good summit with Kishida, announcement of IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework with 13 members. And then the Quad Summit, you know, the Quad leaders, US, Japan, Australia, and India. And then after that, 
you know, Blinken gives a, the, the famous China speech on China policy, and then you have Shangri-La dialogue and the trilateral meeting of the defense ministers. So I think they're really trying to show that they're continuing to see China as the so-called pacing threat, as they say in the Pentagon. And the, um, you know, the real impact of Ukraine is that it has, it has really raised in the minds of U.S. policymakers and defense planners concerns about what this means for a Taiwan contingency. Concerns that uh, the concerns about what needs to be done to enhance Taiwan's defenses, you know, whether Xi Jinping sees a window of opportunity closing with regard to to Taiwan, it's really focused. I mean, I think particularly U.S. and Japanese defense planners on the Taiwan scenario, maybe you know, a, a degree less for South Korea. But you know, the interesting thing is that in the summit joint communiques. That came out for Biden's trip to Seoul and Tokyo. Both of them had the exact same language on Taiwan, right? Which is which is which is unusual. But it just shows that there's much more of a focus now on Taiwan's defense. I mean, there was always, but I, I think these have been heightened because of the war in Ukraine. Ellen, what is the South Korean view of all of this? So South Korea uh, came into very. Um interesting time. Obviously, as you know, um, South Korea has been sort of, uh, the previous South Korean government have been sort of ambivalent about what to do uh, as the U.S.-China strategic competition continues to increase. And the previous government sort of chose the uh, strategic ambiguity as a way to create a delicate balance between the United States and China. But what is interesting about the U.N. government is that this government, um, although it took office almost a month ago from now, so it's concrete China policy yet to be seen. But there are some indicators that suggest that the general direction of South Korea's new China policy, for example, President Yoon Suk-yeol indicated during his election campaign that strengthening the U.S.-RK alliance was his foreign policy priority. He also expressed his desire to install the second thought battery and also interest, expressed his interest in joining the Quad. He built a good personal rapport with the President Joe Biden during their summit and clearly showed that his government's foreign policy is centered on the strong U.S.-Korea alliance. And Yoon government also wants to work with the U.S. and other like-minded countries to enhance the rule-based international order. So all of this suggests that Yoon government's strong growing alignment with the policy alignment with Washington, which was not seen before. And I think this actually means a lot for the region as China increasingly sees uh, over and continues to observe how China, uh, South Korea is going to go going forward. Jonathan, you've been watching this for a long time uh, from Korea, from Beijing. What about all of this with IPEF and China? Will it impact on China's economy and broadly its influence in Asia? Well, I mean, obviously, the backdrop to um, IPEF is, um, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, which of course, um, the Trump administration withdrew from, and then it sort of was reborn as CPTPP. And, and of course, that was meant, um, I mean, not explicitly so, but of course, was, was sort of meant to be a counterweight to China, or if you want to put it in a more um, ominous way, you know, a way to sort of... Um, ring fence China and then sort of have an economic uh, framework that could bolster democracies in the region and U.S. allies in the region. And, you know, when that fell apart, or at least when the U.S. stepped away from it, you know, I think there were certainly people in Beijing who <laughs> were probably pretty pleased with that outcome. Um, and to now have this, you know, this, this, this framework, you know, I think the consensus seems to be that um, it's the best that Biden could do given the circumstances. 
I mean, Trump is no longer president, but the attitudes that he brought to the fore when it comes to free trade, I think, are still very much with us and um, likely to be for a while. And so, you know, if you were an advocate of TPP, I think the view was, okay, well, look, this this obviously is not as good as TPP, but um, we'll take what we can get, and it's it, it's better than nothing. And I think that's 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 something to celebrate. But if you're China, it's hard to see how this necessarily poses a direct threat. I think a lot of the early commentary, I think, has probably been accurate in just sort of saying that look, there's there's potential for something meaningful here, but we really need to see what actually comes of this. I mean, it it could just sort of remain vague words that sound good on paper. Certainly, we. We sort of know what uh, TPP would have done um, in terms of tariffs and in terms of trade, and it would have been very concrete. And you know that model has been done before, but but what we have here now, I think, is is something that needs to be proven. So, Victor, in your view, is this just pretty hollow at this point, and you know maybe has some potential, but you know what was really needed was TPP or something closer to TPP, and this is window dressing to you, or you know how do you view it? So I think if you talk to administration officials, they're, you know, they're pretty happy with the outcome of IPEF. The ability to announce this with 13 members was something that, you know, wasn't, was probably beyond expectations in terms of what they were able to do. Jonathan is absolutely right. I mean, the biggest drawback of IPEF is that the United States is asking these countries to join this new sort of framework or rules-based economic order, but at the same time not offering uh, market access as sort of one of the things that would be a benefit of countries joining IPEF. So focusing it much more on rules. And and so what that has created is a narrative, a public narrative that CPTPP is about market access and IPEF is about supply chains and decoupling from China. I mean, that, that may not be the accurate interpretation of IPEF, but that's sort of the way it's been sort of uh, written about now because it's not, you know, it's not about trade and, and market access. So, but at the same time, you know, the Biden administration, they're trying to find their strategy when it comes to sort of trade and the economic order. There's, uh, you know, I think a lot of people want them to focus on digital trade in particular. But, you know, at the same time that the Japanese government supported IPEF, they made very clear that they were also, they also wanted the United States to return to CPTPP. Now, you know, the political realities here in the U.S. is that's not likely. Certainly this year, maybe later in the Biden administration, who knows, the Obama administration initially was opposed to TPP before they were, before they ended up being for it. So, you know, anything can happen. But right now, broadly speaking, you know, this is still a huge problem for the U.S. strategy in Asia. Like we're, our strategy has always rested traditionally on three pillars. That's the security pillar, the values pillar, and the trade and economics pillar. And so we're operating only on two of the three legs of the stool right now because for various reasons we won't, we won't join CPTPP. And, you know, that's a huge disadvantage when you compare it in terms of the competition with China. So this is really incrementalism in your view. Yeah, I mean, it is. Again, if you talk to administration officials, they'll tell you it's a, it's a big and important first step to building agreement among countries about a rules-based order, you know, WTO conforming, no Chinese economic coercion, resilient supply chains. They'll tell you all those sorts of things. 
But you know, the factor of the matter is there's a there's a major trade agreement, CPTPP, that many countries in Asia have signed up to, and we're not in it. Ellen, from your perspective, as the new Korean government forms, do you expect any changes in policy towards China? So new changes that uh, South Korea became much more clear about uh, its interest in uh, working more closely with the United States. They want to work with the U.S. and other like-minded countries to uh, preserve the rules-based international order. So these are much more, um, I think, that Korea, the Yoon government clearly laid out what they want and, and what's, uh, what they're going to do. But strong U.S.-Korea alliance does not necessarily mean that Yoon government will openly uh, adopt an anti-China policy. In fact, there are still areas where the Yoon government wants to cooperate with China, such as the North Korea issues and trade. So as South Korean and Chinese foreign ministers recently agree on the uh, importance of mutual respect in their uh, in their bilateral relationship, I think that word mutual respect is something, the key word that governed the bilateral relationship between both countries going forward. Although how they define the mutual respect is something that we will have to see. Jonathan, I want to ask you the same question. Do you expect any changes in China's policy towards Korea and the United States as a result of the ROK-US alliance strengthening? Well, I mean, I think um, the backdrop from from Beijing's perspective is that, um, especially since Ukraine, the geopolitical outlook, I think, for them has, it, it's grown starker. I mean, they you could argue, and, and many have, that uh, China had hopes of being able to peel off Europe, whether you're talking about the big Western European powers, Germany, France, uh, from the US, or, you know, the Eastern European countries, and, and sort of split them off a little bit. But I mean, I think um, the view in Europe that, that China sort of cast its lot with Russia is pretty strong. And um, I mean, obviously, uh, China would say that it's neutral. But I think the view in Europe is that China is, you know, pretty clearly on Vladimir Putin's side, has sort of made that avenue look a lot more daunting for China. Um, at the same time, um, as you mentioned, in you know China's own backyard, you have you know South Korea now moving closer to the U.S. The Taiwan issue is now becoming a top-tier global issue. You see just a parade of U.S. Uh, lawmakers flying into Taipei, as well as lawmakers from Germany and from France and from Europe flying into Taipei to sort of give a show of support to the government there. And so, you know, I mean, it, it sort of made the battle lines, the friend or foe question much starker. And so, you know, I think that there's probably some hope that China can still, you know, keep some countries that might be sort of feel in the pull between China and the U.S. more to its side. I mean, Australia just had an election where uh, you have a more left-leaning government in place. And so um, there has been some outreach there to Canberra to try and keep them on side, although there's been a little mixed messaging as well, because there's there, there was a little incident with some Air Force planes between uh you know, Australia and China. Japan, of course, uh, remains firmly in the U.S. camp. You know, I think there was a time when Moon Jae-in was, was president in Seoul where they were thinking, well, you know, we can kind of keep South Korea perhaps, if not, you know, on our side, then not fully on the U.S. side. But, you know, I, I don't know 
whether or not they're going to see an opportunity with Yoon in the same way that they saw it with uh, with Australia, just because, you know, this was a shift from a left leaning government to a right leaning government in Seoul, whereas it was it was the opposite in Australia. Victor, you know, Taiwan is on the tip of everybody's tongue these days. You know, how do you view this situation? So I think that there's a, you know, there is heightened concern now that China has learned lessons from the war in Ukraine, the difficulty of the Russian efforts, and that for that reason, the United States and others really have to focus on what can be done to deter China from thinking there is an opportunity uh, for some sort of military action against uh, against Taiwan, whether it's later this decade or early, earlier in the decade. Um, you know, Chinese are constantly doing exercises off the coast of Taiwan. And the United States is trying to make this into an issue that's not just a U.S. issue, but it's an issue for U.S. allies and partners in the region. A CSIS strategic elite survey from a few years ago showed that among strategic elites in Asia, one of the most important indicators of the U.S. security commitment to Asia is the defense of Taiwan. If Taiwan, I think the question was like, if Taiwan fell to a forceful unification by China, how confident would you be in the U.S. security commitment? And across the board, it was like less than 20% confidence. So even among countries in other subregions of Asia that have no direct connection to Taiwan. So even countries that decouple from the Taiwan scenario felt, felt that way. So there's a lot at stake in this. And, you know, the, the war in Ukraine has created all these ripple effects. We don't know fully what all of these effects are in terms of how it's affected the way Xi Jinping and the PLA think about the Taiwan scenario. All we know is that from a U.S. perspective, it's become a top priority. And, you know, as Jonathan said, there's a lot of political activity, lawmakers, others going to Taiwan to show that the, the U.S. defense commitment is strong. But, you know, I think there'll also be a lot of military efforts with the U.S. and its allies to try to strengthen, uh, strengthen Taiwan's defense. As I said earlier, the Japanese are very focused on this. Arguably, they're more focused on the Taiwan Straits issue now than they are on North Korea, despite the fact that North Korea is firing missiles and artillery pieces into the East Sea, the Sea of Japan, which just goes to show you how concerned everybody is about how China will be impacted by this war in Europe. Ellen, so how does North Korea factor into all of this when we're talking about Taiwan? So North Korea has uh, test fired almost uh, 18 missile tests this year, um, and its country is believed to be preparing for another uh, nuclear test. And I think that South Korea and China, uh, when we talk about uh, them uh, on the North Korean issue, they are basically open to dialogue to break the current de diplomatic deadlock with North Korea, although it is North Korea that is refused to and is less uh, not interested in uh, resuming a dialogue any, any anytime soon. And this puts, uh, I think, South Korea and China cooperation North Korea uh, more difficult, uh, at least in the short term, because um, of their uh, disagreements on two major issues. One is the, their disagreements on sanctions in North Korea. Since late 2019, uh, China and also Russia have called on the international community to ease sanctions on North Korea, citing the economic difficulty of the North Korean people. And recently, these two countries vetoed the UN Security Council resolutions brought by the United States to impose additional sanctions in response to North Korea's range of uh, multiple violations of UN security resolutions. And because of this, and given that the prospect of China's cooperation on sanctions became a more difficult and more dim, I think that that really leaves South Korea and United States to work with other like-minded countries to rely on unilateral or secondary sanctions. 
in case North Korea carries on other nuclear test or other ICBM test, which will be less effective um, as compared to the international sanctions joined by the China. And another area of disagreement I see between China, South Korea and China will be the South Korea's joint military exercise and tri trilateral military cooperation with the United States and China. China opposed these military exercises, uh, arguing that they unnecessarily provoke North Korea and escalate the tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And China is extremely sensitive about the uh, South Korea's ongoing military exercise, uh, increased military cooperation with the United States and Japan. And yesterday, Defense Minister of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan uh, actually met on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue and agreed to resume and regularize their uh, trilateral military cooperations to more effectively deal with the North Korea's growing threats. But China will be very wary about the U.S.-Korea-Japan trilateral military cooperation, especially poses uh, South Korea's uh, forming a trilateral military security alliances and joining the U.S.-led military defense system. So this will be a huge area where China will be watching the deep concern as the U.S.-South uh, Korea-Japan continues to increase their cooperation on North Korea. Jonathan, as Beijing is got its view set on so many different things, you know, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's what's going on in Russia, what are they thinking about North Korea's recent behavior and what Ellen just said that they're, you know, the, the thought is they're preparing for another nuclear test? Well, I mean, I think, let me first start by saying that, um, you know, even for those of us in Beijing, it's just, it, it is a bit of a black box. It's not easy to know what, um, you know, China is thinking, and and of course, it's it's always arguably the biggest uh, mystery when talking about you know the six parties and and and, and all these players um, in Northeast Asia. Partly because we know that there has been a history of mistrust between Beijing and Pyongyang. It hasn't just been you know a rosy alliance between the two sides. It's it's obviously far more complex than that. And you'll hear voices in Beijing that are sort of suggesting that the U.S. is happy with, you know, the North Korea issue because it allows the U.S. to keep a military footprint in the region and it allows them to get South Korea and Japan on side. And of course, I mean, um, you'll have people in the U.S. Who, who feel that China is happy to have North Korea continue to be a problem because it keep, keeps the U.S. on its toes. And so, I mean, there's definitely you know, some benefit, I mean, whether or not they want the North Korea situation to, to be like this to, for, for Beijing to, to have this. But I just find it hard to believe that, that, that China would want North Korea right now to add another destabilizing factor. It's got a lot of geopolitical headaches all around it. I mean, keep in mind that if you're sitting in Beijing and almost in any direction you look, I mean, you, have, you got North Korea up there, but then you've also got the Taiwan issue. You still have an unresolved border dispute with India, which, you know, is, is the next most populous country in the world and the other big country that is trying to walk a fine line on, on Russia and Ukraine. And then you've got the Xinjiang issue, which um, continues to be a big geopolitical issue for China in general. Um, and then you got Russia, Ukraine. I mean, you got a lot going on at the same time. And I, I just don't know that um, Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing, looking at COVID zero and what that's done to his economy at home and all of this coming in a year when he is looking to um, secure power for another term at a party congress that's probably going to be held in a few months. I mean, 
um, coming into this year, he wanted nothing more than stability. And I think this year um, he's gotten anything but stability, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, whether it be the economy at home, whether it be the Omicron variant and North Korea right now, I think would just would just sort of be one too many, I would think, if I if I were sitting in his shoes. Victor, I want to ask you to react to that. You know, China seems a little bit off balance, especially with what's going on, as Jonathan just said, you know, domestically, they're still dealing with COVID in a really profound way. And it's affecting their population. It's affecting, you know, even Xi Jinping, you know, leader for life. Well, maybe some are even questioning that now. Yeah, I can't imagine that they would welcome another nuclear test by North Korea, seventh nuclear test by North Korea, given all the things that Jonathan just laid out in terms of what's on Xi Jinping's plate. Uh, having said that, I don't think North Korea is in the mood to do China any favors, to do the U.S. any favors, or to listen to anybody. You know, they seem pretty clearly on a path of wanting to demonstrate capabilities, whether it's long-range ballistic missile capabilities, whether it's multiple reentry vehicles, maneuverable glide vehicles, you know, short-range ballistic missiles, and then, you know, just recently, artillery pieces in the EC. They seem on a path to want to demonstrate all of these capabilities successfully. And then maybe at some point later, they'd be interested in talking. But right now, they don't seem to be interested in talking to anybody, um, including the Biden administration. And they seem very focused on trying to show that they're a strong state, even as they deal with their own COVID outbreak uh, inside of the country, which they announced last month. So you know, Be Beijing may not want a seventh nuclear test. I mean, the United States clearly doesn't want one. But I really don't think they have much influence on this matter. You know, we used to say that the, what China could do is they could put a lot of economic squeeze on North Korea to try to get them to comply with like U.S. and Chinese common goals of wanting to see no nuclear weapons on the peninsula. But the last two and a half years of the COVID pandemic and North Korea's border lockdown shows that, you know, they the North Koreans cut themselves off from all trade with China and it has an effect or soften their views on nuclear weapons. It's just that made them stronger. So again, going back to the, you know, we had this old playbook where we used to say, well, if we can just get China to squeeze North Korea, then we can get them to denuclearize. The last two and a half years have shown that North Korea has basically cut itself off from trade with China, and that has not changed its ambition for nuclear weapons. The North Koreans actually imposed on themselves the harshest sanctions possible, harsher than anything that the Chinese could actually impose. And it still hasn't changed uh, their behavior. Now, the one caveat to that would be, you know, we don't know how much energy trade is happening between China and North Korea. You know, during the pandemic, maybe it was ship to ship transfers because of concerns about COVID. But we don't know how much energy is, is being transferred. But again, I think a lot of this was cut off during the pandemic. It means that, you know, all of this continued advocation for more sanctions to squeeze North Korea, you might make a marginal difference, but it's not going to make the big difference that we thought it would make in the past. Jonathan, what are you going to be watching in the weeks and months to come the most closely when it comes to Beijing's interaction with the Koreas, with the rest of the region, with Taiwan? Well, I mean, obviously, I was making that point about stability. And, you know, I mean, China has breathed heavily when it comes to Taiwan. They've made it very clear that they're not going to tolerate any move towards declaring independence uh, on the part of the Taiwanese president. 
or the U.S. pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, what may be possible in terms of sending not just lawmakers, but sending cabinet officials or making other sort of pronouncements or statements that get rid of that strategic ambiguity that that the U.S. has sought to preserve for so many decades around whether it would intervene militarily or not on Taiwan, right? And and you add on top of that um, all of these exercises and flights that both the PLA Air Force, you know, as well as some of the U.S. allied planes have been doing in the region. And there have been a couple of close calls. And as we all know, when everyone is right up to the line, there's always the possibility that you have an incident and an incident could be a trigger for something bigger. And we've talked a lot here about Taiwan, about North Korea. And I mean, there are obviously a lot of parallels. I mean, the historical parallels are many. I mean, you could point to, you know, unfinished sort of unification goals on both sides. You can talk about how Kim Il-sung's invasion of South Korea in June 1950 prompted the U.S. to send naval ships to protect Taiwan. And that foiled Mao and his designs for wanting to settle the Taiwan issue. So we've seen historically that these two geopolitical issues are not totally separate from one another. And so I think, you know, that's, I mean, there, there's a sort of stuff that we can foresee, but I guess what I'm watching for is the sort of stuff that you can't foresee. And and COVID too, I think, is, is the other wild card, both in North Korea and in China. And if China is insisting on COVID zero, that word zero is a pretty powerful word and it doesn't leave you a lot of wiggle room if you're the leader to be able to allow this variant to spread. And if you continue to crush the economy in the name of um, making sure that there are really zero cases, then um, that economic pressure is going to manifest itself in political pressure. And when political pressure is there, then that also ups the stakes for geopolitical miscalculations or decisions that are made perhaps more rashly. And so I put those the factors there. And I'd also just quickly throw on the development of the war with uh, Ukraine as well, because I mean, I think in the last day or two, um, it looks like the narrative is starting to shift again. And it looks like Putin may be gaining some ground. But um, but we know that there have been many, many twists and turns here. And of course, if 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 things should go downhill quickly for Putin, that's going to be yet another factor um, at play here. So a lot of moving parts here. And it's, it's just really hard to forecast what happens between now and the end of the year when she is is hoping to to get that extra term. A lot to think about for sure. Ellen, Victor, Jonathan, thank you so much for being here today and uh, for this fascinating discussion. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrew. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.